You know, I bet if people listen to this, I bet they say, wow, they have the same mannerisms. Well, we I, do. I've heard that. I know, I've heard that. We also sound pretty similar. I guess. I, we have the same cadence of voice. I think we're too similar to do a podcast. Yeah, I know. It sounds like one person. <laughs> I don't know if we're different enough. Do you want to get into the the question that we are thinking about answering for this podcast? Yeah, and in speaking of stories, how about we go through and we tell a little bit of the story of Joseph? Right, the Joseph story. Yeah. So, okay, I'll start. I'll start. So, Joseph is the son of Jacob, and Jacob is the son of Isaac. And Isaac is the son of Abraham. That's how the patriarchs go. But Joseph is the son of Jacob. And Jacob, if you didn't already know this, uh, had kids with multiple women, as was common back in those days. And one of his wives was named Rebekah. And Jacob loved Rebekah, the Bible says, more than he loved the other women he had kids with. More than he loved... Uh, his other wife, Leah. And Jacob had two kids with Rebekah. One was Joseph, and one was Benjamin. Um, and so Joseph is older than Benjamin, and before Benjamin was born, uh, Joseph was alive, and Jacob showed special favoritism toward Joseph. And he did this by giving him a coat of many colors, which, if you know much about fabric making back in those days it is very difficult to make a colorful coat uh, like the one that is pictured uh, that that jo- that Jacob gives to Joseph it, this making a coat of many colors would be very expensive and it would be very difficult and it would and it would be an obvious means of showing favoritism but the problem is Joseph had other brothers as well and when they see their father showing the special favoritism to Joseph, they don't like it, as I'm sure many of us wouldn't like it if we saw our parents giving special treatment to other children other than us. And to go along with this, at the same time, Joseph was having dreams. He actually had several dreams, but the gist of all of these dreams was that one day his brothers would serve him. One day he would be ranked above his brothers socially and he would be wealthier than all of his brothers and they would be bowing down to him one day similarly that doesn't strike us well either that doesn't sit well with us when we hear someone tell us quite plainly that they're better than us we don't like it so you have joseph and he's telling his brothers these dreams and he's also wearing this coat of many colors as he's doing it and naturally his brothers don't like it Uh, So his brothers one day are tending flocks, I believe, outside of their home, a few miles outside of their home. I don't know how how far they were. Uh, And Jacob asked Joseph to run to his brothers and give them some food and essentially run an errand for his father. And Joseph, the beloved son, uh, readily complies and he obeys his father and does this for him. And as he's going out into the field, his brothers see him coming, and they actually plot a scheme against him. They say, when Joseph gets here, let's kill him. 
and let's smear the the coat of many colors with his blood and say that a dog got him so we won't upset our father as as much as he would be upset if they if he knew that we had killed him but one of the brothers says no this is not a good idea and to to appease his brothers he just says let's throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery so that's exactly what they do J joseph gets to his brothers and they grab him they throw him in a pit and when merchants come by they sell him in, into slavery and he's essentially sold to egypt and you know if you can think of the scene from gladiator where uh the the main character is Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's character is is captured and sold into slavery. Uh, th that's exactly what you can kind of think of when you picture Joseph being sold into slavery. So he, Joseph is sent to Egypt to work as a slave in Potiphar's house. And when Joseph is in Egypt, um, the Bible said that Joseph was very handsome in both form and appearance. And... Uh, because of this, Joseph's or Potiphar's wife takes notice of Joseph. Wait, I think you're missing a, a. I think an important part. Uh, and what what is that part? First is that Joseph had the favor of God, right? And Potiphar noticed this, and Potiphar liked Joseph, and he was like, "Wow, this guy's pretty great," and so he promotes him to be like over all of his other slaves, and kind of basically be in charge of Potiphar's house. Right, so Potiphar, and I forgot to mention this, Potiphar sees the Spirit of God at work in Joseph and has favor on Joseph and appoints Joseph to be the head of his household. That's what's said. And Potiphar's wife becomes very attractive to Joseph and uh, she pleads with him to sleep with her, essentially. And as I remember, she does so multiple times and Joseph responds to her saying, no, I will not do this. Uh, how could I do this and sin against God, essentially? She gets so persistent one time that she actually grabs onto him and he flees. I don't know if the temptation was too strong or he, he didn't want to be caught in a situation like that, but she grabs onto his cloak and as he's fleeing, his cloak falls off and she holds onto it. And she's either upset that Joseph rejected her like this, or she's disappointed. But for whatever reason, she tells her husband, Potiphar, that Joseph came on to her. And Joseph assaulted her uh, sexually, and she has this cloak to prove it. When the Bible makes very evident that that's not the case. And naturally, Potiphar, regardless of... Whoever Joseph was, and however well he performed at his job, naturally Potiphar threw him into prison for doing this because he trusted his wife. He trusted his wife account, his wife's account of the events, and so Joseph is in prison now. And the Bible says again that Joseph prospered while he was in prison, and the guards in the prison actually appointed Joseph to be the head of the prison, the head of the prisoners. At the same time, he's he has God's favor. And in this case, that means Joseph has the ability to interpret dreams. So 
two men have dreams. One of them was Potiphar's cupbearer who was in prison, and the other was Potiphar's baker who was in prison. And they both come to Joseph with similar dreams, similar dreams in their structures and the way the events turn out. And Joseph interprets each of them. And to the cupbearer, he says, good news, you're going to get out of here in a few days, and Pharaoh's going to reappoint you to your position. And the cupbearer is overjoyed, naturally. And to the baker, however, he says, bad news, you're also going to get out of here in a few days, except this time, instead of being reappointed to your position, you're actually going to be hanged, going to be executed. And as Joseph interpreted their their dreams and prophesied events, the events came to be. The cupbearer was reappointed to Pharaoh's uh, hierarchy, and the baker was executed. And Joseph said to the cupbearer before he got out, Remember me. Remember who I am, and see what you can do to get me out of here. And so the cupbearer gets out, and unfortunately he forgets Joseph. That is, until Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a few dreams, and he's very confused as to what these dreams mean, and he asks all of his magicians and all of his dream interpreters, what do these dreams mean? Um, And no one can interpret it. And suddenly the cupbearer remembers, there was a guy in prison who interpreted my dream and told me I was going to get out of here. And he also interpreted the baker's dream and told him he was going to get out of here. Let's see if he can interpret this dream. So he tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh calls on Joseph, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream goes like this. There will be seven years of prosperity in Egypt, and there will be seven years of famine in Egypt. He, he tells this to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, what do we do? What do we do with this information? How, how do we take advantage of this prosperity, the, the years of prosperity, and how do we avoid, to the best of our abilities, these years of famine? Pharaoh actually appoints Joseph to be in charge uh, of the process of you know saving up in the years of prosperity and then rationing in the years of famine. Will, did you did you want to jump? Yeah, in? yeah. So this is a big undertaking because there's so many things involved, and because Pharaoh has seen that the Lord is with Joseph, he appoints him second over all of Egypt, and so Joseph goes about you know, collecting all this grain and stuff, storing up everything um, during the seven years of prosperity, and everything's great. And then the seven years of famine happen. And it's not just famine in Egypt, it's famine everywhere, basically. And so Joseph's brothers back at home are also starving. And Jacob, their father, hears that there's still food in Egypt, and so... He tells all the sons, like, what are you doing standing around? Go to Egypt and get some food that we can eat. So they all go on, and they walk over all the way to Egypt, and they come and buy food. And when Joseph sees them, they don't recognize him because it's been so long, and I'm sure he looks a lot different. But he recognizes them, and he, I guess, kind of wants to test them. 
Um, right. He wants he to see. Acts if, a little harsh to them. He wants to see if they are the same men who threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery. Yes. So they treat him super nice. They they say, "Oh, we are your servants. We come here to buy food." And he's kind of a little harsh in them. And he says, "No, no, no. You're here as spies to overthrow Egypt." And they're like, "No, no, no. Uh, I promise, we're not." Um, like it's legit and stuff. And so he's like, I don't believe you. Okay, okay. Well, I'll take over. Joseph accuses them of being spies. And he says they are dishonest men. They, they try to explain to him, no, we're honest. And we have a father. And we have, uh, we have, there's 12 of us. And there's the youngest son that we left at home. The youngest brother that we, we left at home. But... Joseph, you know, pretends that he doesn't believe him, believe them. And he says to them, this is how I know that whether you are honest men, leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your brother, bring your youngest brother to me, the one you left at home. So I will know that you are not spies, but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. So, they're leaving, and as they were emptying their sacks, uh, having left one of their brothers with Joseph in prison, they noticed that Joseph not only gave them their ration of bread, but he also gave them their money back. So essentially they came to Egypt intending to purchase bread uh, and, per- and purchase grain, but Joseph uh, deviously or secretively doesn't let them do so he gives them both their money back and he gives them the grain they asked for and they simply leave their brother with him so the brothers arrive back home and they tell their father we left our brother with with this man in egypt who was actually joseph uh but we brought all this grain back and we actually brought our money back and if we want to get our brother back essentially what we have to do is we have to bring our youngest brother benjamin with us and we have to take Benjamin to this man in Egypt and show him that that we are actually honest people and we're just we're just shepherds living in the land of Canaan. And so what happens is uh, all of Joseph's brothers who return back to the land of Canaan and along with Joseph's father Jacob, they eat all of their grain. They use up all their food and the famine is so severe that they haven't grown anything so they have to return to Egypt to buy more and so Jacob their father says to them go back and buy us a little more food Uh, and Judah actually responds to him but the man warned us solemnly you will not see my face again unless your brother Benjamin is with you And so Judah says to his father, if you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Uh, They actually do end up taking Benjamin. And they actually do end up returning to retrieve Simeon, I believe, who's in prison still in Egypt. And they actually do end up returning to get more grain. And when they're there, uh, the man of Egypt, Joseph, actually, who they still don't realize is Joseph, says to them, oh, you are honest men. 
I'm going to have a feast for you. I'm going to have a feast for you, and I'm going to show you that I approve of you. Thank you for being honest with me. And so he has a feast for him, and all the brothers are gathered around the table, um, and Benjamin's there. And Joseph has never seen Benjamin, who's his true brother. All of his other brothers are his half-brothers, since they were born from the same father but a different mother. But Benjamin was born of his father and of his mother. Benjamin is his true brother. And what the account says is that when Joseph sees Benjamin, he favors Benjamin, and he, he gives him special attention and special favor. Joseph, you can tell from the account, wants to reconnect with his brothers. He wants to trust them again, and he wants to reconcile with them. But he doesn't know if they've completely changed. He doesn't know if they're the same men that sold him into slavery however many years before. So what he does is he plays a trick on them to get them to reveal their true character. As he's refilling uh, their bags with grain and, and thanking them, he tells one of his servants, Joseph's servants, to put his special divinity cup so a, a cup that would be very important to an Egyptian at that time into the bag of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And so what, what, it, what it's going to look like is that Benjamin has stolen this cup. And since Benjamin has stolen this cup, he deserves to be thrown into prison and he deserves to be essentially a slave in Egypt from here on out. So they do this and, and Joseph sends the men away and he sends Benjamin away with the cup in his bag and Benjamin doesn't realize it and as they're leaving Joseph says to one of his servants stop them the my cup is missing my divinity cup is missing so the servant rushes away and he stops the men and he explains to them why he stopped them and he says my master's cup my master's divinity cup is missing one of you have stolen it when in, in reality, they didn't steal it. Uh, Joseph is just playing this trick on them. And so they search all through the bags, and they, they go from oldest to youngest, and they end up with Benjamin. And they search Benjamin's bag, and it's in Benjamin's bag. And this absolutely devastates his brothers. And his brothers plead with Joseph, do not take Benjamin Take us instead, for this will kill our father. This will literally kill our father if, if he realizes that not, not only has his oldest son Joseph been taken from us, but Benjamin also. We will be your John, servants. We will be your prisoners. Yeah. I think it's important to mention who is the one that says this. So Judah is the one that offers himself up. And says, no, no, seriously, please take me. Because he had given himself as assurance to his father. And come later, I'll explain why I think it's important that Judah is the one. But keep going. In this moment, Joseph sees the true character of his brothers. And he sees, these are not the same men who sold me however many years ago into slavery. They've changed. And something about the hurt that Joseph's loss caused in their father change their hearts. These men are not the same. Um, and Joseph feels able to reconcile with his brothers. 
And what the Bible says is in Genesis 45, when, Jace, when Joseph makes himself known, it says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for, for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two, for, for two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. And further on in Genesis 50, along the same lines, Joseph's brothers are once again afraid that, that, that Joseph will take revenge on them um, now that their father has died. And so they... They approach Joseph and they say, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of, of, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept again when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went down and fell before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. And that's what we want to focus on today, is, is this idea that, that's captured in the lines of what Joseph said to his brothers. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that's what we want to talk about, Will, um, is how is it that tough circumstances and difficult situations can reveal God's purposes? Well, and is there anything you'd like to add to that story, or is there any question you'd like to pose along with this one, Will? No, not, not right now. Just go, what, what were you going to say about it? So, Will, my question to you is, how can God use the evil that we mean for each other for his purposes? And maybe you don't want to answer that question, but can you give me examples in which this has happened? Outside of the story of Joseph, where we clearly see how the evil that Joseph's brothers planned against him actually served God's purposes in the end. Can you give yeah. any other real-life examples of that? The first thing that comes to my mind, and I kind of want to mention this, and this is why I interjected and said why it was so important that Judah was the one that offered to take Benjamin's place. It's because the first example that comes to mind is Jesus. See, he was, he suffered at the hands of the Romans um, and the Pharisees. They killed him crucified him brutally they meant to destroy him 
but that was part of God's plan. He meant that for good as a way to redeem everyone. That's that's what first comes into my mind. And Jesus is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Right. And I think part of the reason was because um, at the end of Genesis, Jacob is blessing all of his sons. You know, so the first the first like three sons had done done some stuff that was like not that was like pretty bad. And so they they weren't going to get the firstborn blessing. Instead, he gives it to Judah, and he says, "The scepter will not depart from you, saying you will rule. You know, through him will come David, and through David will come Jesus." And so right. Jesus was referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Right. And I think Judah gave a great foreshadowing as to what Jesus will do for us: sacrifice himself, take our place. Take our and, place, yeah. Yeah, the only the difference is, while Benjamin, you could say, didn't deserve to be a slave, we do. We deserve death. And in a sense, we and already Jesus are. took our place. Yeah. If you look at Ephesians 2, mm-hmm. Colossians 3, it talks about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's God yeah. who makes us alive. Yeah. Something I want to I want to pose to you, John. Okay. Is so God can use evil for his good, and of course he can use good for his good. So w- what's the difference? Like if both of them are in God's plan, why do evil, why do good? Like what how do we know what to do if both of them are in God's plan? Well, that's a good question. Um, what you see in the Joseph story is actually Joseph being a good steward of the gifts that God's given him. And time after time, Joseph is made the head of Potiphar's household, the head of the prison, and then the head of uh, this process in Europe, in Egypt, and actually Pharaoh's second-hand man. And so he goes from being a slave to a prisoner to the second most powerful man in Egypt. And that's because he's being a good steward of the gifts and abilities that God's given him, I believe. But we also see this in contrast with the evil that his brothers uh, committed to him and, and the wrongdoing that Potiphar's wife accused him of. And the forgetfulness of the, even the cupbearer, right, that, that Joseph served by interpreting his dream and making a request to him, and, and the cupbearer forgets it. And so we see, you know, sin and malice and forgetfulness, all negative things juxtaposed against Joseph's and, well, really God's goodness in Joseph. And what we have here is the contrast. We have here is the contrast of dark and light. And we have here... God's goodness shining distinctly in dark places. Um, And so God wills good, and God works through good. And I argue that he uses trials and dark situations and, and terrifying circumstances to reveal that goodness because of that contrast that we see. And I think we have many real life examples and in, in which we can see this one being 
the Holocaust. How many stories have you heard of where people risked their lives to save the Jews that were being persecuted at the time? You have Corey Tinboom and Betsy Tinboom in the hiding place, and, and you have um, Meet Geese, I believe her name is, who took care of Anne Frank, and you have so many people, and take your focus off the Holocaust. You can look at uh, Mother Teresa going to India and and shining as a light in a dark world there, in the dark world of poverty and the caste system, and, and God's goodness shining through her there. And you have William Wilberforce shining as a light in a very dark England uh, when he was alive, in England that was immersed in the slave trade and that continued to practice slavery and, and continued to approve of slavery. And it's God through William Wilberforce who shines the light in a dark place and fights against the slave trade and, and you know, eventually succeeds and eventually wins the hearts and minds of the people. And we see this, I believe, time and time and time again is that dark circumstances continually are, are means through which God works to reveal his goodness. And what do, you, what do you think about that, Will? Well, I mean, obviously, I agree. I, I think we can see that throughout history. The bigger question, I think, is, okay, does that make these dark times okay? Because millions suffer, especially right. in these dark times. Right, Will, and you're right, and, and that doesn't mean it's okay. I heard once yes. that patience is a good thing and endurance is a virtue, but who wants the trials that we have to endure. That is, who wants to be forced to endure? And when you endure, you are encouraged because you are enduring and the Holy Spirit is essentially working through you, but nobody wants those tough circumstances and trials. And those are not good. The virtue that comes about because of it or is revealed because of it is, but those are not good. And therefore, they are not okay either. Um, yeah. It's so, like slavery, not okay. And God gracious, God endured it, right? But that doesn't mean it was okay. It absolutely does not mean it was okay. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't mean it's okay. And the thing a lot of people do is saying, okay, if God is good, these things that are horrible still happen. Right. How can God be good? How can and... God just let them happen? Exactly. Well, and that's a good question. And I, I really wrestle with it. But I think, the first, I think the first thing you have to recognize is that God's not, God's not willing these things. He's not willing these things. And you see, you, you answer that way, but then you're led into the, the question... And I'll pose it to you like this, Will. Will, if you see, uh, if you see a child being threatened by 
a man with a with a gun and you see this man with a gun about to kidnap this child or about to murder this child and you do nothing about it are you in the wrong are you culpable and i think a lot of people would say you should definitely do something about it maybe you didn't cause the the evil to occur but if you see it you should do something about it especially if you want to call yourself good and just and righteous and i think we can transfer this to god at times and say god it's like you're letting this happen you can do something about it you have the power to change circumstances and the other thing is that you call yourself good and you call yourself the father of lights and you call yourself the fountain from which all righteousness springs and yet you don't do anything about this about these things why not and what do you think will how would you answer that if there is an answer to it i i've also struggled with that thought about it and what i've come to at least for now is God is all-powerful, correct? Right. But there's also something to limitation. Okay. Like people say, it's like, oh, well, what does God not have? And like, oh, limitation. And I think God gave himself a limitation when he created human beings that being that we have free will and this is part of the reason why i don't believe in incomplete predestination we can't do anything i i believe that as far as it goes to we can't do anything to earn ourselves to get ourselves to heaven that was all through jesus but i still believe that there's free will and I think God doesn't interfere a lot of the times because he has made us with free will. Now, why he doesn't, that's beyond me. But I will say this. That's the way it is. So we need to look at that from... A realist perspective and say okay we're given this uncomfortable situation as to there's evil in the world what do we do right and i think that's what we should look at Could so it be god and this also kind of times this also goes back to what you were saying with okay uh, what i'm about to talk about goes to what you're saying with see something and not do anything about it are we in the wrong have you ever read uh Candide, or I think that's how you say it, by Voltaire. No, I haven't. Okay, so it's kind of, it's pretty short. It's like, it's a ridiculous just story. It's sometimes humorous, sometimes it's it's completely unbelievable of some guy going around, you know, classic Voltaire style, mocks his critics and stuff. But it's all struggling with the question of, okay, does everything happen for good? And 
they keep horrible things keep happening to these main characters and they're like well i guess it must be for the best and in fact one of the times they meet this guy named james the anabaptist and he's like nice and he just takes them in and cares for them um and they're on a ship candide um his teacher and who's the guy that believes that everything happens for good and james the anabaptist and there's a big shipwreck um and james the anabaptist is like flung overboard and candide's about to go in and save him and his teacher's like wait stop no this has happened it must be for the best and Voltaire points that out to say, all right, this is ridiculous. You should do something. And then at the end of the book, everything's really changed. And they're kind of all kind of back to where they start, but a lot poorer. And, and they meet with this guy and he's basically saying, just start doing something. Get a garden, start tending to it, start working. Man was made for work. And sometimes they still talk philosophy, and that same guy still mentions, hey, man, I guess this all did happen for the best because you know now we're all back together and uh, everything wouldn't have worked out if it didn't happen that way. Right. And Candide says, excellently observed, but we must cultivate our garden. I don't think Voltaire completely understands the position of everything happens for the good. Or at least I feel like he misrepresents it in the book. I could be wrong. But I think I agree with him on his point a bit. Yes. This is the way things are. Right. I believe things still happen for the for God's glory. Right. For God has a plan. I still believe that. Okay. But I feel like we, we can be active in that plan. And there's this famous book. It's like a kind of a businessy book. It takes like 30 minutes to read. It's really short. It's called Who Moved My Cheese? Have you read it? No. I've never Have you heard, heard about it. it? No. So basically there's these two mice and these two little humans. And they're in a big maze. And, you know, they like cheese and stuff. And so they're going around and they're looking for cheese. Um... And they all stumble across a big pile of cheese. And they're like, wow, like this is perfect. We can like live here and just eat this cheese all the time. So all the, both of the mice and both of the tiny humans like, you know, set up shop there. And they, they eat the cheese and everything's great. They have a house like and stuff. Eventually the cheese runs out. And the mice have noticed it was going to run out. And as soon as it runs out, they're like, well, all right, let's move on. Let's go to the next place to find some more cheese. And so they went out and they would continue looking for cheese. But the two humans were like, oh, my gosh, like, where did it go? And so they, they look around in that little area saying someone must have taken it. What has happened? No, this can't be the case. And they're just trying to accept the fact that they're trying to figure out why. Why did this happen? Bring it back. Instead but they never ask the question. On. But they never, they never just move on. One of them eventually, eventually moves on and 
find some cheese a little bit here. Most of the time, not. But eventually, comes across where the other two mice had found another big pile of cheese. Right. And he's like, wow. And so he learned his lesson. He would still continue to, even though there's a big pile of cheese, you know, still kind of be on the lookout. See when things were drying up or when he needed to start looking out, find some more cheese. So I think that's that's the way I think we should deal with with this. It's hard. We, we I don't know if we will ever understand why. Why these horrible things happen. But they do. And I think we just have to trust God that he knows what we're doing and do the work that he has set for us. Okay, Will, but what do you say to the person who struggles with belief and struggles actually believing that God loves him, which is really a central tenet to Christianity, struggles believing that God loves him because he sees this world around him and he doesn't see a God interfering. And he, he doesn't see divine help anywhere. What do you say to that person who is on the verge of re- rejecting faith because of this? What do you mean by divine help? He doesn't see things getting better. He looks at the Holocaust and he says, he, he doesn't look at the Betsy Tinboom and Corey Tinboom and Anne Frank stories. No, he looks at what is it? Six million deaths. Some, millions of deaths. He sees that. He doesn't see the goodness. He just sees that. And he struggles believing there's a loving God who allowed this to happen. I don't know. But all I can think to say is... Will, can yeah. I say this? So it sounds like yeah. you're based on the mouse story that you told and the Voltaire story that you told. It sounds like you're saying resignation is the key to just not Whoa, question it. Wait, that's that's not what I said. Okay. The point I was trying to get at was, yes, I don't know if we will know. I think we we should still try to look, but we need to have a foundation. Right. So it sounds like How you're going to have to believe something, and reality will rip and tear at whatever you believe, be it in God, yeah. be it in no God. Reality will rip and tear at whatever you believe. I think that's a, I think that's true. I think that is a thing that happens to every single belief and the measure of the belief is how well it holds up under the rip and tear of reality yeah but i do want to say this and here let me just start with this antidote will you played football in high school right yes i did maybe maybe this isn't the best example but did you ever have you ever found yourself at football practice or maybe at another time in life when it just would have been really nice to have some company in a tough circumstance where going through something difficult was made a little bit better 
knowing that a certain person or a certain group of people was going through it with you. Yeah. You you felt that before? Oh, yeah. Off season. <laughs> yeah. And um, knowing that certain people were not exempt from whatever conditioning you were doing, from whatever cert- tough circumstances you were doing, knowing that certain people were not above it, but were there with you in the process. I know I've felt relief from this before. And I think God recognizes the power of something like this. And I can remember during basic training, we have at the academy something called the assault course. And what the assault course is, it's it's a grueling test, right? Well, at least I thought it was grueling. I'm sure some people thought it was easy, but it was very difficult for me. And it was a hour-long, you know, just beat down of conditioning, going through all these obstacles, push-up after push-up, you know, just crawling through the mud and just breathing heavily the whole time. Your lungs are burning, your legs are burning, your heart is pounding, and your muscles are draining. And you just, you reach a point where you just can't do another push-up and you don't want to take another step and you don't want to, you know, do another duck walk, whatever it is. You don't want to hold your rifle above your head anymore. But then you look to your right and you look to your left and you see not only the the other basic cadets that are going through it with you, but you see the other cadre members, your, your flight commander, the captain, right? The, the officer, the general, the, the senior, the firstie, who's, who's a big deal at the academy. And you look to your left and you look to your right and you realize they didn't decide to take the day off. No, for once, they're not beating me. They're not making me do push-ups. They're not telling me what to do. No, they're going through it with me. And their rifles are above their head and they're muddy and they're breathing heavily and their legs are burning and they're telling me, let's keep going. Let's keep pushing on. And it's, it's a very powerful realization that you come to. And it's something you have, to, you have to go through the experience to realize just the power of, of what true company is and, and true fellowship is in times of suffering. And you know, that's just a small example. But God himself realizes the power of this. And, and he takes advantage of it takes advantage of of this power in that he sees the suffering and he sees the world that he created perfect but we through our free will through our choices have somehow messed up and he sees the evil around us and he has compassion on us he looks at us and he has compassion on us and he doesn't stay far off no, he doesn't. He, through Jesus Christ, he comes to earth and he lives as a carpenter's son. And he, he, he dines with sinners and tax collectors. And he has compassion on lepers and he heals them. And he weeps with those who weep and he rejoices with those who rejoice. And then he, he does the unthinkable. And that he, he stands in front of our judgment. 
He takes our punishment on himself. And he pays the price for our sins. And he does so through the most excruciating. And when I say the word excruciating, literally, that's, that's what the word stems from, is crucifixion. Excruciating and crucifixion have the same um, root word, which is crux. And, and what the crucifixion is, is one of the most grueling punishments you could ever go through. It's, it's the most grueling form of execution possible. And God looks from his place outside of time and outside of space and looks at this form of execution and at this time period in the world and says, that's the one I'm going to. I'm going to the tough circumstances. I'm going to show the people I love that I'm there with them. I'm going to, I'm going to show my love to them. I'm going to, I'm going to do this with them. I'm going to endure with them. I'm not going to stay far off. I'm going to come near. I'm going to come close. And when you realize this and you hold this in your left hand and then you hold the predicament that we were talking about, which is how can a loving God, how can a loving, merciful God allow such terrible things to happen? You realize that you can't hold both things at once because what you realize in holding your two hands up is that there's a gap between the two and that we don't know what we don't know. But God did not stay far off. He came near. And the God that is willing to do that, there must be, there must be a loving reason why he's not willing to tell us the answer to the question that we're asking right now. And he's just beckoning us and he's inviting us to trust him through it. And I I find that very powerful. I find that very encouraging. What do you think, Will? Yeah. Hmm. So, um, I don't know if you know who uh, Vince Vitali is. He's a teacher with the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And he does a really, really powerful uh, explanation on on kind of the problem, why suffering? He answers the question, why suffering, by looking to Jesus, and he does so in a way that will really change your perspective of it. And uh, if you look up uh, Passion City Podcast, I think. Uh, No, it's actually called Passion City Church Q&A Part 1, and it's a question and answer session where Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vitale are both answering tough questions and if you watch if you watch this video I think your mind might change if 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 you weren't convinced in the first place okay yeah I'll put a link in the description okay yeah that's a good idea um, um I, you know I we've been talking for a pretty long time is there anything you want to close with will um yeah there was one thing that that kind of I've been thinking about um have you ever heard of the book Ordinary Men Ordinary Men I think so it's about these Polish like middle class farmers basically who like you know middle aged 
whenever the Nazis invaded. And the Nazis were like, all right, uh, you guys can be our police force. If you don't want to, you don't have to do this. But they all did it. And the story goes through how it takes ordinary men and transforms them into people who are able to drag a pregnant woman naked out into a field and shoot her. Oh, wow. Horrible things. What, like, through, like, these stories, you, you, you just realize, I think we need to realize that if we were in the Nazis' place, like, if we were, if we were those people, the probability speaks for itself that we would probably be de- we would probably do those things and that horrifies me right and a lot of people don't realize that and the first step is we have to recognize that that's what we would do we have to ask god to to change us because someday something like that will happen again and we can't sit idly by. No. We can't do those things. No, we have to be ready when tested. We have comes. to be we have to be prepared. And how do we prepare? Well, you have to prepare your mind. You have to prepare your body and you have to prepare your spirit for the trials that are going to come. Right. Cuz the flood is coming. Will you be prepared? And I think if if everyone could rec- recognize that and changed, we wouldn't have situations like that. Because when people see things starting to turn south, they would stop them in their tracks. They wouldn't let them go another step. But we don't let that happen. We let evil creep in because because I believe that we're full of sin and we need God to save us and luckily we have redemption through Jesus right yeah so that's kind of been on my mind on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved Mm -hmm. he's alive and if you just call on his name and you just ask him to reveal himself to you I trust that he will mm-hmm. and, um, that's that's what yeah. I wanna, that's what I want to close with is if you haven't yeah, done so that's good give him a chance just give him a chance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so we'll all right I'll talk to you later I'll see you John all right bye all right bye